the world loves the content that comes out of the UK. So if we have access to the right talent and we have the right skills in place and we have good access to funding, there's no reason why the UK cannot continue to to dominate this space and really punch above our weight on a global stage. Hello and welcome to UmiCast, a podcast about business and entrepreneurship. At UMI, we make it easier for businesses to do more and go further by finding and packaging the best information, expertise and finance so you can get more of what you want. In this podcast, I'm delighted to say that we speak to none other than games industry pioneer Ian Livingston. Ian is someone who is described by many people as one of the founding fathers of British gaming. He's been at the heart of games and interactive entertainment for actually 45 years now. Uh, so a lot of people will remember Ian from his work setting up Games Workshop in 1975. He co-founded the retail chain uh, and was responsible for bringing some iconic role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons to the UK, as well as co-authoring the Fighting Fantasy Gamebook series, which has sold more than 20 million copies worldwide, and actually is credited as having improved literacy and critical thinking skills among young people as well. In the 1990s, Ian served as executive chairman of Eidos Interactive, uh, securing numerous global IPs while he was there. Two that you may remember are Lara Croft Tomb Raider and the Hitman series. Ian was basically responsible for, for, for bringing those games to life. He's also a leading advocate of what he calls the power of play. And he spent many years pushing for more games and computer skills to be included in education provision. He's advised government on this and published numerous reports around this. He's also an experienced investor in games companies and is a board member of venture capital firms that are focused on providing investment to games companies. So someone who can speak with pretty much unparalleled authority on the games industry as it was then and as it is now. So in this conversation, what we talk about is the humble beginnings of Ian's career, um, the emergence of role-playing games and, and their lasting impact, uh, still tons of role-playing games that are played by millions of people all over the world today, as well as obviously Ian's contribution to British gaming, which I don't think can be overstated, and some of his thoughts on the key issues impacting the sector today. We're delighted to say that Ian is actually an ambassador for our Meta Games Industry Index, which UMI is delivering in partnership with the Games Industry Trade Body UK. Um, so what we want games companies who might be listening to this to do is nominate themselves to be included in the 2021 index. They can nominate themselves, they can nominate other games companies that they think are doing interesting things in the sector by visiting www.metagamesindex.co.uk. So that's quite enough from me. Uh, I really hope you enjoy this podcast with none other than the godfather of UK gaming, Ian Livingston. Thank you so much uh, for speaking to me, Ian. It's great to be speaking to you at a time when the games industries emerged from, from the pandemic. Uh, one of the few industries to have emerged in, in, in such a strong position. So one of the first things I kind of wanted to ask you was, Kind of what have the you know what have the last eighteen months been like for you? I know you're normally in, incredibly busy. You're normally uh, moving around, and, and has it has it been much the same, or have you had to kind of like a lot of people take a bit of a, a step back and slow down and, and things like that? I, I think it was really a question of probably creativity is a little bit down, but product 
productivity is massively up. I mean, there's no commute times. You go back to back with Zoom meetings or team meetings and you're able to cram a lot more into the day than you would have done pre, pre-lockdown. pre So I think, uh, especially in the games industry, that, that um, there's, there's been an increase in it in output and obviously there's been an increase in, in consumption. I mean, the, the views about the games industry is effectively COVID proof and it ticks all the right boxes for the future digital economy. It's knowledge-based, it's IP creating, it's digital, it's regional, it doesn't have to be in London, it's export focused. And the fact that it's digital means that consumption has not been affected and also creativity has not been affected as people be able to work remotely using cloud-based development platforms. So I don't know of any companies that have had to furlough their staff. In fact, a lot of people have been hiring additional staff. So uh, it's been a, you know, it's one of the few industries that's done, not just done well, has actually prospered during the, during the, the lockdown for sure. Brilliant. Yeah. And I know you've been working on um, a book as well, uh, among many other things, The Dice Men. So are you, is, yeah. are you able to kind of tell me anything anything about that? Well, one thing is it's late coming out for sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, The Dice Men is uh, the origin story of Games Workshop. Um, you know, I started Games Workshop back in 1975 with two old school friends, uh, Steve Jackson and John Peake. And uh, we wanted to turn our hobby of playing games into some sort of, of business. So it's talking about the very first days of, of of workshop and and how it was a huge struggle at first and I can go into detail about that later on perhaps in this interview but it's it's a concise history and, and recollection and hundreds of photographs in the book and uh, it's it's late because the more I dug into it the more I remembered and more I wanted to find out and have my perhaps time warped opinions validated by other people so uh it's been published by Unbound, who are a crowdfunded publisher, and uh, you can still pledge today if you wish. It should be out before Christmas, and um, yeah, I'm very excited about it. It's been quite a passion project. I put an awful lot of effort into this, and uh, it's just good to kind of tell the, the origin story of Workshop, which is now a very significant company, as we know. And we, Steve and I, sold out in, in 1991, but it's now a publicly-listed company. It's worth three and a half billion pounds, which is incredible, considering we started off sleeping in a van in Shepherd's Bush in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, has it been nice in a way, Ian, to kind of reflect on on, on those early days? Because your career's just been one, you know, big project after another, and you know, as in the games industry at large, it keeps moving forward. And I, I guess you probably haven't had that time to, to kind of really reflect on on, on the early days and, and how you felt at the, at the time. Yeah, it was, it's really important. I mean, there's so many incredible people. I mean, what I love about the games industry is full of great people. Yeah, there's, we don't have the celebrity of film or TV or, or, or music. And people tend to help each other. They, they work because they love the industry. And when we started Workshop, we hired people like us who want to play games that were a little bit different to what's available in the usual toy shops. And we were passionate about it. And when we hired people for our first shop, when that opened in 1978, again, it was people like us. And whilst they might have looked like Visigoths, you know, they were... They knew everything about the, 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 the games that we were selling. They knew everything about how to 
play the rules, how to paint the figures, and were super informed. And, and again, that that led to people wanted to come to workshop for kind of a games workshop experience because it was like-minded people just in, indulging in their favourite pastime. I mean, we are surprised, Ian. I mean, obviously you were super passionate about this stuff and you had kind of that network around you. But I mean, I know, for example, one of the one of the things you're most well known for is bringing Dungeons and Dragons to the UK. Yeah. Uh, and I know that I know that you started with just a, a small number of copies of of the game, um, and, and really you couldn't have, couldn't have possibly imagined how big it would would go on to become. But yeah, were you, were you surprised even opening the shop in in 1978 with those queues going around the corner at, yeah. at just how many people were were like you yeah. interested in this? We were staggered. I mean, as you say, we we ordered six copies of D and D. And on the back of that order, we got an exclusive distribution agreement for Europe for, for three years because Gary Gygax was also operating out of a flat in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. And we started selling it mail order through our Alan Wiesler fanzine. But it was very, very you know, small time. We weren't we weren't full time in, in, in the business at, at all. And that we only went full time uh, following our trip to the States in 1976, we went to attend Gen Con. And Gen Con 9 was that's where we met Gary Gygax and we signed up lots of fledgling games companies that was, were just kicking off in the States. And when we came back, we had we'd given up our flat. We had nowhere to live. We didn't have an office and we had no money still. But it's also, it was all very hand-to-mouth, and that's how we ended up having to live in a van for three months because we could only have enough money to to rent a small office at the back of a state agent in, in Shepherd's Bush. But So we had this very triangular life of doing mail orders from like nine o'clock in the morning till midnight, then into the stinky van for for the for the night in winter. And then we joined a local squash club for a shave and a shower and got very good at squash by default. And... Um, that went on until we actually managed to get somewhere to live. So when we did open that shop in 1978, we were surprised at the the number of people outside because you know our perception of it was still you know, a, quite a small hobby. And but there was a gathering momentum. We'd already started White Dwarf magazine in in 77, and so we'd moved from a circulation of 200 with with Alan Weasel to now five four thousand with with the first print run of, of White Dwarf. So we knew it was uh, happening, but we were making it up as we went along and and it's still, as I said, very much hand-to-mouth. Yeah, I, I guess, how long was it, Ian, before you kind of realised that this was, I mean, I know obviously, you know, there was quite significant opening the shop in 1978, but when did you first sense that there was going to be a games industry kind of sp- springing from from you know what you were a, a huge part of you know i mean like you say it was a hobby uh, for you and and for that community of people who were interested in you about this stuff and were uh, subscribing to, to white dwarf magazine but when did you first sense that like there was going to be an industry kind of grown out of this i don't think we you know we were pretty, <laughs> believe it or not we were pretty young back then and uh, we don't i don't think we saw it in terms of an industry we were just doing what we wanted to do. We were determining our own future by thinking ourselves in a very privileged position to actually be 
making a, a business out of something which we love doing. And we didn't think in terms of industry as such um, and, you know, trying to get market share or it, it wasn't that structured. It was just, say, it was just happening, growing. Um, but we didn't, we, there was no evidence of it happening anywhere else, really. So we didn't see it in terms of us building this or joining a, a huge industry because it, it wasn't. It only came with the emergence of, of other companies, obviously in the States, which was pretty dominant, and then some European companies. But, you know, Workshop was growing kind of almost in a, in a bubble. Yeah, I mean, I guess you were just doing it for the for the, for the for the enjoyment and for the passion of it and, and you know, yeah. to, to be... You know, and you talk a lot about those kind of hard yards that 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 um, that you had to walk during those early days. And I get, I guess, do you look back on that in terms of, you know, what makes a, a good entrepreneur? And do you think it is that ability to just kind of put your own lifestyle to to one side for a time in pursuit of, you know, your passions? I suppose. Yeah, but it doesn't seem it's not hardship when you're doing something you really enjoy. I mean, when I give talks to people, I say. Don't just, if you can, try not to do things just purely for money. Do what's something that you believe in, because if you enjoy what you're doing, you're going to do it, you're going to do it well. If you do it well, you're likely to be re- rewarded. Therefore, success is likely to happen, and the byproduct of success will be you know, money's reward ultimately if you do it well. So it's, uh, it's always top tip is, you know, do not be afraid of, of failure. Failure is a success work in progress. Now, we made loads of mistakes, and did things wrong and but just you know have that vision enjoy what you're doing and and and, and carry on and and you'll find a way and i say if you really believe and love what you're doing yeah you know, snipping in a van was a laugh it wasn't oh more poor us it was funny yeah i can imagine i can imagine there was some some sort of uh kind of worlds colliding there when you know you you're kind of running this quite successful growing business and you're starting out but then you're also sleeping in the van it's probably quite a strange uh strange sort of dynamic there it wasn't big at all when we were sleeping in the van that yeah this was yeah yeah 76 77 and then when the shop opened it started to grow and then you know white dwarf accelerated that growth and created a community around which the 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 role-playing hobby grew in the uk and that's when we started opening uh, new new shops, first in Manchester and then in Birmingham and, and Nottingham and, and, and Sheffield and, and, and beyond. I think there's over 500 shops today. It's incredible. But the thing is, it hasn't really changed, Workshop. It's still essentially the same thing, albeit Warhammer's replaced D&D, but it was still creating a you know, hobby environment and... and creating your own content and, and a minute to go with that content and then retail th- through your own shop primarily and then all kind of galvanized by, by White Dwarf magazine. Not a lot's changed. It's still that g- games workshop experience, I think. Yeah, it's kind of stayed true to the the yeah. the reason that, that you launched it in the first place. It's just done at massive scale now, obviously, being a publicly quoted company. Of course, of course. And you mentioned role-playing games before, which I think are absolutely central to how the games industries evolved. Obviously, you know, computer games um, have taken that that format and, and, and yeah. ran with it and are responsible for so many of the games that, that people know and love today. Um, and I, 
I just kind of wonder, you know, why do you think people like these role-playing games so much, Ian? Well, let's think about what effects has D&D had on, on the world. You know, without D&D, would, would Warhammer have existed? Would our own fighting fantasy game books have existed? Probably not. Would World of Warcraft existed? Probably not in its form that it is today. So it had a huge influence. Uh, and as why is that? It's because people like to have control of their destiny, you know, with fighting fantasy game books. The reader was the hero. They had they were empowered by the decision making. It was given the agency to control their own events. And having an alter ego, a character which you kind of nurture through life in worlds that you don't go to ordinarily is, is a very compelling experience. So it's it's no surprise that that, that role playing took off because it it is effectively theatre on the fly. Um and giving a sense of creativity and adventure and excitement and camaraderie and thrills. And there's, I mean, it's a, a totally unique experience. And, you know, Gary Gygax and Dave Arson created a, you know, effectively a milestone in, in gaming history. And it was no game had ever lit up your imagination before like D&D. And I don't suspect any other ever will again. I mean, he, he, Gary Gygax once said that he preferred uh, radio to television because the pictures are better. And when you when you play D and D, you can imagine these incredible things happening in, inside your head, and then yeah. the, the the conversational fun that you have in this kind yeah. of some anarchic settings of trying to overcome the the DM's twisted labyrinths um, is unique. You can't create that in in other games. I think that's it, Ian, isn't it? It, it? It's the way that the role-playing games sort of, you know, capture your imagination and, and sort of set your imagination free in, in a way. And, and, you know, you can be somebody else. You can kind of, you know, escape into these new environments. And like you say, before Dungeons & Dragons, there was, yeah. you know, there was nothing, there, there was kind of no opportunity really to to, to have that experience. It was It, it was brand new. Um, and 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 kind of is still like you like you say with Games Workshop, basically doing what it says on the tin today. So it, it's it's amazing, really, the the durability of of role playing games as 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 well as kind of how you know good the format is for for setting the imagination away and things like that. So um, another thing I wanted to ask you is obviously you've had this forty five year career now in in the games industry, um, incredibly successful you know, by any measure. So I just wanted to ask, what, what are some of your biggest highlights? Because I know there'll be things like fighting fantasy and, and, and the things that you did with, with EDOS uh, Interactive. And, but what, 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 what are some of the things that really stick out for you? Well, starting Games Workshop clearly was a very big moment. The, the excitement of being able to, you know, albeit scratching a living when we started off doing something that we enjoyed doing as a, as a, as a hobby, a pastime was obviously huge. I think launching the first issue of White Dwarf, seeing it in the shops was amazing because that was a really big decision moving from a, an instant print fanzine, Alan Weasel with that circulation of 200 to a, you know, 
several thousand issues of, of White Dwarf going out there was amazing. Opening our first shop on 1st of April, 1978. Remember it still. Uh, you know, I took that photo. That's pretty much doing the rounds on, on the internet. And uh, that was that was a bit a big, big moment. Um, seeing the Warlock of Firetop Mountain on the shelves in, of W.H. Smith in August 1982 was another big moment. You know, we finally got our first Fighting Fancy game book out there and that being quite a, a unique journey to get to that point because it wouldn't have happened if the editor from Penguin Books hadn't turned up to Games Day 1 in 79. Completely... <laughs> Bemused by the fact that thousands of people playing Dungeons and Dragons at Games Day, and said, asked if we could write a book about the hobby, and we said, well, let's write a book that allows you to experience a hobby, and that's how we thought about effectively replacing a, a dungeon master with with the book and making it multiple choice, opposed to free choice, and 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 making the reader the hero of the book, a book in which you are the hero. And that's how Fighting Fantasy got through despite the managing director of Penguin Books laughing so loud at the proposition of an interactive book that he apparently banged his head on the table. He thought it was impossible. No one would want to do that. And also, you know, all the negative press we got when they came out first, the Evangelical Lions publishing an eight-page warning guide about them saying, because you're interacting with ghouls and demons, you're bound to get possessed by the devil. And and a local wow. figure wanted to chain himself to the railings of Penguin Books until they were banned. There was petitions sent in saying they wanted them books because children were using their imaginations too much. Of course, this was all great publicity. Um, and there was even a, a woman in deepest suburbia who phoned in saying that her son, having read one of my books, levitated. So the, the kids were thinking, oh, well, for pound fifty, I can fly, can I? Amazing. We'll have some of that. So getting... Warlock out was incredible because despite all the negativity, because the people thought because they were a game book, they they weren't a serious book. You know, they got a whole generation of kids reading and and 20 million copies sold, and it subsequently found that literacy was improving because of people um once to deeply concentrating on, on on the on the contents of the books and and improving their critical thinking and, and creativity again because it was giving them the agency of control inside those books making an interactive experience or on a, a passive linear experience so fighting fantasy was a huge huge uh, event when it came in in uh, 82 and then another big day was when we left workshop in 91, we sold out to a management buyout and then I jumped ship into video games um, as executive chairman of, of Idos in 1995, which we floated on the London Stock Exchange. And another big moment was launching Lara Croft Tomb Raider. I did get to meet Angelina Jolie a couple of times, which was uh, amazing because not only was she a, a wonderful person and she was hugely intelligent, hugely you know, just a great person, and and uh, you know, to be able to license a, a film based on a game was another unique thing. And then leaving Idos when we were acquired by Square in Japan, I started investing in in startups, um, in indie startups, and then of course another big moment was seeing the next gen review, which is on on skills. So I've been tasked by the government to look at the. 
at, at ICT skills in, in schools and how we recommended uh, computer science to put on the curriculum to replace um, ICT as was, which was largely boring kids to death with Word, PowerPoints and Excel, giving no insight how to create their own content. So we're very passionate about making digital creativity a, a core component of, of, of any child's uh, education. And... Yeah, yeah, there, there are a number of other things, but I don't like to think of them as, as big moments as such because you know, I just enjoy the whole thing. I say it's an amazing industry. I'm 71 years old now, but I'm, I've got no intention of retiring. I will never retire. I mean, I'd be too scared to retire. I mean, it's, you know, what would I do? I'm not sure. Yeah, well, I mean, there's, there's not many people who can be saying that at 71, Ian, you know, that they're never going to retire. So I guess it... Yeah. It's really, really uh, inspiring to, to hear that you've never lost that that passion for the industry. That you yeah, and I think it's really important of. also to, to equip the, the next generation with the right skills. I mean, you may also know I'm opening a school in in in, in September in the, the Livingstone Academy, Bournemouth, which is a, a state school. It's uh, open to anybody, um, but it'll be a focus again on digital creativity, learning by doing a lot of project work, kind of contextualizing learning and, and applying knowledge as opposed to kind of learning abstract and and always academic stuff that doesn't relate to everybody. So it's to be you know, very visually based and very practically based and hopefully kids will enjoy their learning at school. Because for me, I used to love learning, but I hate school. You know, I did pretty bad at school. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much to to unpack there from what you said, but I think you know if we should kind of start with with the work you've done around education, um, I love the way you describe it as the power of of play, and I think from the example that you mentioned about the way that fighting fantasy when that took off had a, a tangible impact on literacy skills and critical thinking skills, I suppose was that really the kind of seed where you started to realise that gaming in general could have this really positive educational impact and has that has that kind of been the guiding motive of all of the because you've done so much work around yeah. this over the years yeah it definitely was um seeing you know, i mean even now you know I, some nearly 40 years later i get you know, a lot of contact from people who said that fighting fantasy inverted commas helped them through life in many ways it gave them that sort of and a sense of well-being and, and being able to control events inside the Fighting Fantasy game book and gave them that feeling of I don't know, empowerment, I guess. And, and then seeing how people started saying, well, they were great for reluctant readers because um, they only needed a short attention span. It was great for problem solving. It was great for of, of, of not giving up. You know, trial and error. Um, it wasn't a binary. You get it right, therefore you're able in exam. Or if you get it wrong, you're you're less able. In fighting fantasy game, but you just start again. And of course, if you wanted to cheat, that's also fine. The the, the five finger bookmark was everywhere. But I'm not saying people should be cheating in, in school. But it, it, again, it showed kind of people's determination to get through. So it kind of hopefully encourage kind of entrepreneurial skills in a very obtuse way. But if you think getting onto video games, I mean, they are so misrepresented in, in, in the mass media. I mean, it's changing slowly as 
mass adoption of games is, is evident. It's a $200 billion a year industry. Three billion people are playing it. It's growing 10% year on year. But people in the media often just talk about, you know, the five or 7% of games are 18 rated, which shouldn't be played by children anyway. But if you party prejudice against some of the 18 rated titles and think what's happening cognitively when you're playing a game, you you have to problem solve. You cannot get through a game without problem solving. You learn intuitively. You learn by experimentation. You learn through curiosity. You're in, encouraged to try again. As And we're all different, so we all take different amount of time to get things right. Whereas I said a second ago, in an exam, we're all tested on one day to a standardized metric and it judges you on that one moment. But a game allows you, without any punishment, you can fail in that safe environment. And over time, everyone can be successful in a the game. There are no losers. Everyone can be a winner. Games like Minecraft, effectively digital Lego, are hugely creative. A child can learn contextually by applying the heat of a furnace to silica sand that they can create glass, and, then, and they can take that glass and put it in their environment. And they won't forget that, whereas a teacher might have told them that, but they've probably forgotten it because there's no there's no application of that knowledge. There's no context for that knowledge. Um, and then you know, games effectively a management simulation, roller coaster tycoon. You learn about the physics of building the rides, the economics of, of pricing the rides, and the management of, of staffing those rides. And if people still can't get their head around about it, around it, let them think about when they're next allowed to fly to some distant land, how their pilots learn to fly. Would they prefer them learning by reading a book, uh, move the aileron, what was it, 15 or 25 degrees? I can't remember now. Or use simulation software, which is effectively a game, but without the scoring. It's games are a cross-curricular incredible way of learning whilst also actually enjoying yourself. And who says learning can't be an enjoyable experience? It's insane that children do all their fun learning outside of school, either learning on YouTube or from their peers or doing their own search. There's, everybody likes to learn. Don't tell me that. And yet in law schools, they're fidgety, they're bored because you know, education has not moved into the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think stigma and society's perception of, of gaming and young people playing games is is such a key issue today. And I think has been an issue, you know, Ian, like you say, when you launched uh, uh, Fighting Fantasy and and there was those kind of sort of religious uh, concerns around, um, you know, people being contacted by the devil and, and all of these things that we know now are sort of ridiculous, frankly. Um, do you think that the, um, the needle has moved a little bit in terms of society's perception of gaming today, or do you still think there's this kind of permissive uh, idea that children and young people playing games is, is, is kind of a, a bad thing? Is, is, do you think, how, where do you sort of sit on I think it, it certainly changed I think for the better uh, in the 90s it was often the case of you know 
teenagers locked away in their bedrooms playing single player games on, on, on consoles and therefore there's no understanding of what's actually happening. So people could probably view that as the dark arts. But um, now games are much more pervasive. I mean, obviously with the adoption of, of smartphones at, at scale, everyone's playing casual games. You could only look on public transport, you know, on any train, half the people on the phones are playing a game. So it's become a lot, much more mass market phenomenon and therefore socially acceptable and games are slowly becoming socially culturally and obviously economically acceptable given their contribution but it has taken a, a long time and i think some of the more historical headlines are still negative um but those people who've grown up with games do not fear them so i think it's just a question of time it's it's still quite early in in, in the industry's age for people to be totally relaxed about it is an entertainment and also I would say as a, as a learning medium. I mean, yeah. games are a contextual hub for learning and people just have to get their heads around that. You know, when you're yeah. playing chess, people think that was good for you. Although, you know, the early, when chess was first talked about in the early press, you know, Scientific American said that people shouldn't waste their time doing chess. You should do much nobler things just in, the, in like in 1859. And so every time games come along in whatever format, they're usually viewed dimly. But we're yeah. getting there. Absolutely getting yeah. there. I think, I mean, something that I learned recently that I, I probably should have known, Ian, is that um, gaming is actually the biggest, in, in terms of industry and, and sort of GVA and all of those economic indicators, is actually um, the, the biggest form of screen entertainment there is you know it's bigger than music it's bigger than film and i think well, in terms it's bigger of than music and film combined actually and it and it's growing because every time there's a, a new iteration a new platform i mean technology drives innovation in, in 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 games and these are all additives to the experience so whereas in music the new platforms are substitutional lps get replaced by cassettes which get replaced by cds which we gets replaced ultimately by streaming, the, the revenues are not compounded, they're substitutional, whereas in games, it's all additive. So you've still got consoles, still playing games on Facebook. Obviously, mobile is increasing. Then along comes VR, AR, eSports. Every time there's a new technological platform, it's additive to the experience and additive to the, to, to the, to the global revenue per annum. So it's... You know, it's it's no surprise that, that games is the dominant entertainment industry, yet, again, not enough people know about it. You never see senior ministers in government come into a game studio for a photo opportunity. They're always outside some factory making drain pipes for a hard hat opportunity in a high-vis jacket. And yet, you know, one of the companies I invested in, which got sold to Electronic Arts uh, quite recently, Playdemic in in uh, just south of Manchester, creating a mobile game, free-to-play golf clash, you know, 50, 60 people in a room, generating $150 million a year in, in revenue. Where wow. else do you get that kind of revenue per employee? Not many industries. And yet, you don't see the games industry lauded by politicians like it should because they just don't get it. They don't understand digital enough. And don't understand, certainly don't understand interactive digital entertainment. Yeah, I think that really sort of drives home the importance of, of developing intellectual property, and which I know is something that was 
if I understand correctly, the motivation behind you setting up Fighting Fantasy back in 1982, and I guess in terms of moving into your um, the investments that you make and the advice that you're given to the next generation of kind of video games uh, entrepreneurs, is 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 this something that you keep saying to them? Intellectual property, intellectual property. Yeah. Well, hang on to it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. When we launched workshop and we had this three-year distribution agreement for Dungeons & Dragons. Uh, at the end of that period, Gary Gargas proposed that we merge the two companies. TSR was his company, Games Workshop, us, and that we would spend half our time in, in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, and half time in the UK. Steve and I at that time were pretty young, independent, young Brits and said no to that merge opportunity. So whilst we remain the albeit now non-exclusive distributor of, of Dungeon Dragons, we suddenly realized we didn't own anything. We were simply, on an effective expression, parcel forwarders, albeit in a very strong position um, until they set up their own company. That's why we needed to have a product that replaced D&D, and that's how Warmer Hammer came about, Rick Priestley, um, <clears throat> um, Richard Halliwell and Brian Ansell, created uh, Warhammer and the whole value of workshop is around Warhammer not just the revenues derived from it and the miniatures but also for incremental revenues from licensing and merchandising you determine your own destiny if you own your own IP and also build much better value in, in your company because that you can't take that away from you it's not a license that has to be renewed uh, and somebody else owning it if you own it happy days and that's why you know, whatever I've done, I've tried to make sure that we have as much own IP in whatever organization I've been attached to. Obviously, Fighting Fantasy belongs to Steve Jackson and myself. And at IDOS, we try to publish as many own IP games as possible. Tomb Raider, Hitman, Championship Manager, Just Cause, uh, Deus Ex, etc. These are all original titles which, which, we, which we, the company, owned. And iconic, the, absolutely iconic games yeah. as well. I think it's it's fair to say, isn't it? Yes, I hope so. And then with all the companies I've invested, it's usually been companies who have who've got their own IP. And too often the case is that we developers trade away for project finance. They, so I'm always trying to get them, move them up the, the the value chain of IP ownership to realize as, as much value as they can before they they do want to sell out or have to sell out um, because, you know, that's that's where the value lies. Yeah, I, I think there is sort of a, a big trend in, in the games industry because it is such a young industry of companies developing IP and then sort of exiting within two or three years. So is, is, is your advice to them, Ian, kind of maybe to hang on to it a little bit longer? Well, it's all down to personal ambition. Some people want a kind of lifestyle work. You know, they're happy what they're doing. They don't want to scale. And and then they might not have to, you know, trade away their IP um, or sell their IP. It comes down to personal choice. But if you are getting, if you're a small developer and you're looking for a publishing deal or distribution deal, again, it's all down to negotiation based on strength. But if you can hang on to it, do. Try and be bargain hard to hang on to it if you can and give up, give up just about everything else apart from your IP. 
And um, yeah, it's uh, it's it's the key to your future. But I say it's down to personal ambition what people want. Then yeah, I mean I'm another one of my hats away now. I'm a partner in a, in a venture capital company called Hero Capital, where we we invest in in game studios and and esports and also digital sports areas. And um, you know, we we help developers keep hold of their IP because we're aligned with them on their success and build building value in their company. Yeah. So you so you kind of follow that model of 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 sort of um rising tides lift all boats kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And I think you mentioned you mentioned esports there. Again, one of the most significant uh changes to to have to have come about sort of is how how do you kind of think about this esports phenomenon that you know fe- feels to sort of non non games industry people as if it's it's a fairly recent thing, but has actually this been around for quite a long time? These massive communities and sort of professional uh, games games players. Well, I, I'm no expert in the field, but I mean, it's it's, it's not surprising that it's taken off in in the way it has. I mean interactive entertainment in digital format is what every young person loves the most in terms of entertainment and as me as a kind of an analog guy in the main enjoy watching football guess what today's generation like watching digital football or digital sports or 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 you know games like league of legends whatever being played by the best in class so I don't want to see. I want to see the professionals. They want to see the professionals in in in, in their sports, which happens to be digital sports. So it's no surprise uh, that it's taken off. What older people can't get their heads around is that why would anyone want to watch people playing games on a on a screen? Well, yeah. People might say, "Why do you want to go to a football ground?" You know, that's that could be boring. It's yeah. It's, it's today's entertainment, and there's no surprise therefore that there are professionals in that. In that e in esports with with sponsorship and large prizes and and also being streamed to millions of fans and and watches around the world via Twitch and etc. Yeah, so it's just a yeah. natural um, progression of of the industry as it as it grows. Yeah, I think you know, sitting sitting in a in a stadium or or a, an arena with the twenty thousand screaming fans, it kind of it almost doesn't really matter what's what's happening that's a very basic kind of human experience that's yeah. very difficult not not to enjoy isn't it so I, th- I think that's kind of part and parcel why why it's it's taken off in the way that other sports sort of have before it so in terms of kind of looking again at, at your work with hero uh, capital and in terms of the kind of funding landscape for for games companies do you think it's generally pretty good do you, do you think that particularly the early stage kind of development uh, studios do they usually have pretty good access to capital or do you think there's i know video games tax relief is obviously a, a big benefit that a lot of early stage companies look at but do you think that there's there's a good level of support in the industry or would you kind of like to see more schemes and, and more kind of private investors as well maybe entering the entering the, the the sort of market i think it's definitely getting better from, from the on the government side, you know, we we lobbied hard for video games tax relief, and it finally got through, um, which is a you know a great uh, initiative for for the studios themselves being able to 
effectively get 20% relief on all their development costs um, as in the form of a check coming back to them, which is incredible to be able to compete with, with Canada uh, and, and other areas that have offer a, a similar uh, tax relief. And also for investors, the SEIS and EIS schemes have been great for, for video games too. They're very tax advantageous. Uh, it takes a lot of the risk out of, of making investment decisions. But as, a, as a, an industry itself, I think the UK in particular has always punched above its weight in, in, in creating content. You know, global, bust, global blockbusters in, in, in PC and console and mobile have often come from the UK, but it's always been underserved by capital. Um, there's always been much more available capital in the US and because I think the, the investment community made a bigger effort to find out what the opportunity was. They go to the games conventions, they write analyst notes about the sector and they make it their business to find out what good looks like. And I think it's, I wouldn't say the investment community community in the UK has been lazy but they've just not known how to find out more about the sector but that's changing now again as they've seen the industry boom and they've seen all the IPOs that have gone on and you know you may know that um, I'm also chairman of Sumo Group PLC that's um, had a bid from Tencent made um, quite recently again I can't talk about that because it's a public quoted company, but that you've seen um, a lot of activity in the sec- sector from, from from early startups to you know, major acquisitions. They've also seen massive tech companies and media giants coming into space. You know, Netflix announced their gaming uh, division recently. You've seen Google getting in, obviously t- companies like Tencent, you know, 700 billion market cap. Um, and and Facebook and all the all the big companies now want gaming as as a major part of their 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 portfolio. But the investment community has been slow. Um, I think it's not understanding what good looks like. I think it's been a major problem. They're not what's a good game, what's a bad game, no idea. And in their defense, I think a lot of games companies are not being able to present themselves in a way that they should present themselves. They're not what we call investor ready. Um, they, they might be good at making games, but they're not so good at, at running businesses. So I think this has been a disconnect, but again, that's getting better now. And you know, companies like um, funds like Hero Capital are helping bridge that gap. Yeah, yeah. I think that there's that tendency, isn't there, with with um, games developers, they're at the coal face and, and kind of, I guess, the, the financials and, and all of the things that you say are, are necessary to make a business look attractive from an investor's point of view are kind of almost playing second fiddle to, I just want to make the best possible game, which I guess is what makes the games industry so great that you know all the, all the people involved with it yeah. are wanting to make the best games. But the, so, the, the games that companies that have been successful, and some of the ones that you know, I can name two that I've invested in, have done really well. Is where the creative director is on an equal par with a managing director, mm-hmm. and the managing director effectively enables the creative director to be successful. You know, another tip I always give to to come, you know, startup companies is that you know do what you're good at 
and partner with someone to do the stuff you can't do or shouldn't be doing. There's no point of, the, of some of the creative people running the company. Why do they want to be doing VAT returns and ordering toilet rolls? They should be making the games. Why would they waste their time banking or seeking finance? They should be making a game. And similarly, you know, hiring the managing director without losing control. They're just running the operation for you. You're not giving up control. I mean, you should never do that. You know, the, the minute the, the bean counter takes, tells you what games you should be making, I think it's game over. But um, find that equal partnership. So in, in Playdemic, perfect partnership between Alex Rugby and Paul Gooch. And then in Mediatonic, another company I'd invest in right at the beginning was perfect partnership between Dave Bailey and Paul Kraft. It was, it was that understanding of business and understanding of, 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 of games that makes a great team. Yeah, I think that's a you know partnership work and 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 being willing to uh, to seek out help when you need it. Really, really useful advice for those early stage companies. Ian, are there any other kind of bits of advice that you would be given to, or, or perhaps some advice that you might have uh, you might have given back to, to yourself in in nineteen seventy five yeah. when you were a young video games entrepreneur? Yeah, uh, what would you? Yeah, you, you got to have belief in what you're doing. Uh, it always worries me when people say, oh, well, it's this game's a bit like this and a bit of that. You know, it's like putting it together like a recipe. You should, if you have a great idea, go for that. Even if it sounds mad, but it's original, give it a shot. And if it fails, take your learnings and apply what you've learned to your next iteration. And that's how you can ultimately differentiate yourself from the crowd. Because if you're making Me Too products, chances are you know, it might not fail, but it, it, it's you're always playing catch up, and and it's probably never going to be as good as the original. You know, using yeah. a chess analogy, why would I play a chess variant if everybody else is playing chess? Yeah. Yeah, I think that kind of staying true to your vision and, and, and you know, not being overly concerned at that early stage when it's kind of R&D about, oh, well, you know, what is there anything like this? What are other people going to think of this? I think, I mean, it sounds, Ian, as if throughout your career, you've just consistently pursued things that you were interested in. Yeah, you've got to have, I mean, I, often, I don't always have great self-belief. I always need validation from other people, but if you have an idea and it appeals to you, chances are it might appeal to other people. Yeah. So test it out, see what happens and be prepared to dump it pretty quickly. If everyone says that's terrible, but then you'll have learned from that and you, your next idea might be great. You know, Angry Birds was Rovio's 51st game. It wasn't their first game. Yeah. So, I mean, I think, you know, any kind of entrepreneur has, has those knocks and, and I guess it's having that resilience and belief yeah. and determination to be able to get back up and uh, and try the next game or, or try the next sort of uh, idea or, yeah. or whatever it is. Um, before I let before I let you go in, sort of you've talked about it there a little bit, but kind of on the future of, of UK gaming, do you think that the UK can continue to be at the forefront of this, you know, massively expanding? 
global industry now that it is. You know, there's people playing games all over the world, not not necessarily on console or on PC, on mobile. There's so many different formats. Do you think that the UK is pretty well placed to to continue to, to have a kind of leading role in the industry? I absolutely firmly believe that to be the case. Um, we are a we are a very creative nation. Look at our film, our fashion, our music, our publishing, our architecture, and of course, um, book publishing, and of course, our, our, our games industry. Um, we had early access to programmable computers. The BBC Micro was a cornerstone of computing in schools in the eighties, and a lot of people had a Sinclair Spectrum, a programmable, affordable uh, computer, and so put computing power into the hands of a creative nation. Hey, presto, one of the apples of that was the UK games industry. So it's no surprise that we got off to a flying start and your games like, you know, from Manic Maya to Populous to Elite were very early success stories. And we followed that, obviously, through the console era with, with um, Tomb Raider and GTA and, and then you know, kind of indie star games from Worms and... And then simulation games like Championship Manager, and 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 then you know, there's so many other success stories following that, from Total War to you know the whole host of other games have come out and been global blockbusters, particularly in in mobile space. I said with 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 Golf Clash, and most recently perhaps with Fall Guys from Mediatonic. So we have, we have a rich history of of making games. We have that kind of unique creativity that resonates with the whole world. And we have that sort of ability to come up with, with original ideas. And, and what we haven't always been able to do is to back, back those ideas. And as I said, there's often self-doubt and we, we're not very good at selling ourselves as a nation. But, you know, the world loves the content that comes out of the UK. So if we have access to the right talent and we have the right skills in place for the next generation of of games makers and we have good access to funding there's no reason why the uk cannot continue to to dominate this space and really punch above our weight on a global stage yeah well that's super reassuring to hear ian as, as someone who's, who's who's been in the industry since its inception you know to, to to hear that you think that it's got a bright future ahead is 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 really great and thank you so much for um, taking the time to to talk through your your life and your career and and everything that's gone on in between, I'm sure there's going to be so much uh, value uh, to be drawn from this conversation. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. So thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you. So there you go. Our conversation with Ian Livingston. Uh, that was such an interesting conversation. Ian is someone who can speak with real authority about the games industry and obviously to hear his story and and the way that he that he got to where he is today to hear him put that across in 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 that kind of detail was really quite special so thanks so much to ian for uh taking the time to to talk about all of those things i think there's a couple of things really that that stick out from that uh, the first one is don't be afraid of failure ian said failure is success working in progress I think that's a really important point, you know, pursuing things because you're passionate about them, not just pursuing things for financial reward. Um, I think in the games industry, that's obviously important, but I think it applies to any entrepreneur. You know, if you're passionate about what you're doing, you're going to do it well, and then ultimately you're going to be rewarded as well. So that's definitely something to think about. 
Uh, the second takeaway is uh, to do what you're good at, but then partner with someone else to do the stuff you can't do. No one can be expected to do everything. Uh, if Ian's career can tell us anything, it's that partnership working is a good thing. Um, you know, bring people in to address skills gaps in your business rather than trying to do everything yourself. Uh, in games development, you know, Ian mentioned bringing in a financial director, maybe that would be a good thing to do if you're very focused on you know, making the best possible game. Uh, it was also great to hear Ian say that he really believes in the UK gaming industry. He thinks it will continue to be at the forefront uh, of this global industry now that's people playing games all over the world. So great to hear that he thinks that we have a bright future in the UK. Um, we also at UMI think that the UK games industry has got a bright future, which is exactly why we're producing the Meta Games Industry Index. Um, so we're on the lookout for innovative, diverse, creative games companies um, to nominate themselves or to nominate other innovative, diverse and creative companies to be included in the 2021 index. So please do get your nominations in. You can do that by going to www.metagamesindex.co.uk. So thanks so much again to Ian for taking part in this podcast and to everyone for listening as well. Thank you. <laughs>